middle-aged men in Cleveland, the ever-famous Ted Klopp, and myself, <laughs> just a slappy, Ken Dworsnik. Episode 79, Mr. Klopp, and I say the number 79, it feels like I'm living in the 70s again with the way that our football team has played recently, but that's okay. We'll move on. We, did, we do have the Cavs. Maybe they can play like they did in 79. That was a pretty good team. So. <laughs> yeah, when you say 79, I remember my dad's 79 Buick that I learned to drive in. Oh, my gosh. Was it one of those boats? Was it? Like oh, yeah, absolutely. Boat? I remember going for the driving test and asking the instructor if the car would fit <laughs> through, the, through the codes. And he was like, oh, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> That's how I pass. I don't know. Oh my gosh. Well, a couple of weeks, obviously, since we've gotten together and we did have the Christmas holiday and all that. But uh, what's new with you, sir? Do you have anything fun and exciting going on right now? Well, we in our house, we had a toilet issue. And oh boy. We got a new toilet. I want to double check to make sure that you're actually talking about. An actual toilet and not someone having an issue not abusing the toilet. No, no. Is that correct? No, no, this is an actual physical toilet. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, it's a, I, I want to, I want to tell you about this and I want to share the write-up because this was, when my wife told me about this, I was like, oh, huh. So this is the Glacier Bay Power Flush two-piece 1.28 gallons per flush, high efficiency, single flush, elongated toilet featuring Niagara Stealth technology. Oh, you had me a glacier. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I, I'm trying to figure out what Niagara Stealth technology is as it relates to a toilet. That sounds to me like a drone that you fly somewhere. I don't know. Something the U.S. Yeah, the U.S. government would be using to, to find the bad people, I guess. Yeah. Wow. So here's okay. the description. This toilet features patented hydraulic technology known as stealth. One flush thoroughly evacuates the bowl every time and eliminates double flushing. This toilet has a quiet, Powerful and proven flush, saving thousands of gallons with no change in consumer use or behavior. The flapper, flapper. I've been called that before. I, I don't even know her. The flapper, uh, I should say the flapperless design means no costly flapper, chains or levers to replace and no leaks ever. We'll see about that. Also, this toilet virtually eliminates all refill noise as the valve is never exposed. Mm. That's the write-up. Now, the, the main feature that my wife pointed out that I want to pass along to you, the first bullet point in the description is this. Vacuum-assisted flush clears seven billiard balls on the first flush seven billiard balls ken 
Well, I want to. I would have loved to see the testing for this. Right? If well, you're clearing seven billiard balls, wow! And what is that? Okay, so it can clear seven billiard balls, but it can, can it clear the human waste that's in there? That's what I want to know. That's well, uh, so again, we have a toilet that'll clear seven billiard balls. Well, after that description, I'll be honest with you. I I might have to jump on board and get this yeah. myself. I mean, well, my gosh. Glacier Bay, huh? Yeah, that, Home Depot. Home Depot. The depot. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, that's the big excitement at our house. Uh, <laughs> I, don't that, uh, I don't know that anything is going to surpass that here as we uh, no. 2022. All I know is that you're clearing seven billiard balls at your house. So. Yeah. Wow. I don't even have a pool table. I don't have anything that could certainly uh hold a candle or a toilet to that but uh i did have the opportunity to kind of do a couple christmas things with the kids and all that so it was nice went to the christmas carol which i highly recommend to anybody down the road it's uh, a show that's done at the hannah theater they've been doing it for 30 years obviously not the same actors and actresses but i didn't <laughs> know what to expect that's the first show i've been to in a very long time of a live performance or a play it was absolutely outstanding. Outstanding. The people were super wow. nice. My kids really got into it. No one was drifting off or trying to grab a phone or anything. I highly recommend it down the road. Wow. So that was real, really cool. So hats off to Playhouse Square and the people at the Hannah Theater and all the Redcoats that are volunteers there that help you and move you around and all that. And I, I, was, I was floored. What a, what a great play it was and, and what a great atmosphere and I, I can't wait to do it again wow Very cool. outstanding yeah yep. all right, right here in cleveland sounds like you're on the road right now yeah i'm on location um, i'm doing more research for the show as always ted that's what i do so okay um you'll get more ideas of my research in the next couple of weeks how about that excellent all right well coming up on this show we're going to talk with the author of the book, The Coca-Cola Trail, Larry Jorgensen. He's got a lot of interesting stories about the company, its history, memorabilia, and more. We have news about an overachiever involving a soccer ball. Not a billiard ball, a soccer ball. We have good news from Christmas Eve. In Klopp's Clips, we have a story involving the website rentahitman.com. And in our Cleveland history segment, we will learn about the salt mines located well beneath Lake Erie. That and a lot more coming up. Oh, no, not a dad joke. Hey, I sold my vacuum cleaner. You did? Why? Well, it was just gathering dust. That joke was horrible. Then we have good news. More than yes. two dozen people spent Christmas Eve trying to rescue 12 elk that were trapped in ice crossing the Kettle River near Barstow, Washington. The people, families dragged one elk to shore by hand and used a winch, a four by four truck and a rope to rescue the others. Unfortunately, six elk did not make it, but six others did survive. Thanks to the work of those rescuers on Christmas Eve. How about that? That's amazing. Have you been around an elk before? No, I, I would wonder. Uh, I, I would be reluctant to drag an elk by hand. I got to say that. Well, uh, 
that's where I'm getting to. Those are large animals. I mean, those are like 300 pounds. Yeah, sure are. That is really impressive. Yeah. Really yeah. impressive. Wow. Yeah. That's off to them. Yeah, that's that's uh, not the typical way one spends Christmas Eve. No, not at all. I, I don't know if you even think about that in the morning. Oh, let's see. I know Santa's <laughs> coming at night. Um, yeah, let's go pull some elk around. That'd be yeah. fun. Yeah, yeah. Wow, Maybe that's a cool. sport in the state of Washington. I don't know. Elk pulling. Well, regardless, <laughs> that definitely is some good news. Blah blah blah. 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 Our guest today has written two books, the most recent being The Coca-Cola Trail: People and Places in the History of Coca-Cola. The book is rich with history about Coca-Cola, Coke memorabilia information, and about the business side of what has become a soft drink empire. Well, let's talk with Larry Jorgensen. Larry, thanks for your time. And I'm going to start off with the hard-hitting questions here, Larry. Okay, Ted. Well, we're ready, and it's a pleasure to be here. All right. Here's, here's the tough one. What's your favorite soft drink? Well, it better be Coca-Cola or I'm in trouble. But I'll tell you, I, I like, I especially like the new Coca-Cola coffee. Oh, okay. That, that, it's in those long skinny cans, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's a good one. I like that one. Okay. Well, let me follow that up with why write a book about Coca-Cola? That's a good, that is really a good question because <laughs> it, it wasn't what I intended to do. Um I do, you know, as you know, in the business of media, I do a little freelance writing and uh, had heard about a museum, a Coca-Cola museum in Vicksburg, Mississippi, where they first bottled Coca-Cola. It's kind of a restored Coca-Cola bottling place, soda fountain, et cetera. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And I found out there was another Coca-Cola museum um, about 70 miles away in Monroe, Louisiana. And I thought, that's a great travel combination. I'll do a story on those two Coca-Cola plants. Well, I get to the second museum after visiting and taking pictures at Vicksburg. I get to the second one and I talk to some descendants of the original Coca-Cola bottler in Vicksburg. And I find out that it's, this is not a travel story. This is a book. This is all over the country. And I thought, why not? Let's, let's try it. So he encouraged me to, to uh, make contacts with some that he knew and how to find others. And uh, what started out to be a simple travel feature ended up being a book and a sequel. Wow, that's pretty cool. Well, Larry, I had a chance to look at some of the book, and it seems that the chapters in the book are mostly separated into cities and locations where important events in the history of Coke occur. Why did you choose to do the book this way instead of chronologically? Well, I wanted to make it a, a place where you could go and see things that happened um, in Coca-Cola and that they're still there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, chronological books written on Coca-Cola corporate. And um, I felt each of these cities 
had their own history to tell, and it was not necessary to link them together because they started at different times for different reasons, and that was the story to be told. Although we, in the first book, we do start out with the very first place Coca-Cola was bottled. You know, that's a logical. And then we eventually, about two chapters later, end up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is probably got as much Coca-Cola history as Atlanta, Georgia, because that's where two enterprising young attorneys got the rights, exclusive rights, to bottle Coca-Cola. And that's really what set off Coca-Cola bottling all over the country. So we, we tried to approach it from that standpoint, each, each chapter having its own history and, and not uh, trying to confuse uh, one with the other. You know, Larry, when I was looking at the uh, chapter list here, I uh, immediately looked down the uh, state's, uh, you know, list here, and I didn't see any uh, Ohio cities. So I'm wondering, is there any interesting history involving Coca-Cola in Ohio that maybe you couldn't fit in the book or anything like that? Or is there just not much, uh, does Ohio not have much to do with the history of Coca-Cola? Well, because Coca-Cola started in the South, in Vicksburg, and then Atlanta, of course, the South is where we found a lot of history. As we move north, we found newer uh, Coca-Cola stories, not as much history. And unfortunately, we didn't find places that you could go visit. And that, that was the whole crux to the thing. We wanted you as a reader to say, I want to go see this. And, and what it, we're going to show you what it was in the book. And then when you get there, you're going to see what it is now. Maybe it's a, a boutique shopping mall. Maybe it's a, a brew pub. Uh, you know, hundreds of things that the old plants have become. And we wanted them to be places where you could go in and feel the Coca-Cola history, not to be an old Coca-Cola plant that's full of desks and lawyers, you know, that's <laughs> not no, that makes sense. Larry, two of the chapters that talk about, or two of the chapters you have in the book talk about Coca-Cola signs, unique Coca-Cola signs and Coca-Cola ghost signs. And I'm very interested, what are Coca-Cola ghost signs? Well, th those are in fact uh, signs that have faded away and there's just a ghost of a sign left gotcha. on the side of a building. And okay. uh, cities have gone to um, fundraising events, uh, local groups have gotten behind these and have brought the ghosts, so to speak, back to life. So what we did there is we found signs that were really badly deteriorated and showed how they looked and knew that there was a restoration campaign underway. So we were then able to show the new and improved and restored Coca-Cola murals as they are. Sticking with that, I, uh, you know, it seems like sometimes when you're doing this Coca-Cola or for that matter, any uh, kind of a history product, it's almost like uh, being an archaeologist. Can you tell us a little bit about the sign in Colorado that was just found a few years ago? They were actually tearing down an old grocery store. And uh, as they began to tear it apart underneath, they found this Coca-Cola sign in relatively good condition. And there became this cry of, don't destroy the sign, let's make it better and let's preserve it. So there was a, an effort to raise money 
and uh, they accomplished that. They, they saved the sign, literally the, the whole side of the building the sign was on, moved it into, I think it was the local fire department, and <laughs> a, couple, a couple of enterprising young art students took on the task of restoring it. It was later than, uh, there was a big ceremony. There was a, a ceremony unveiling the new sign and it was uh, paraded down the street and placed on the side of a very popular uh, cafe uh, there in, in Colorado. So again, it's a, a community. And you say, why? Why do they do these things? You know, it's just a sign. Well, it's a sign that to so many people brings back good memories. You know, it, it's just like, is why do people collect, you know, beer memorabilia? <laughs> Somewhere along the line, there was some good memories with that particular thing. And it's part of the community history. They want to preserve it. They want to show what it was like then and what it is now. Understandable. One thing, Larry, that I certainly am aware of is that there is a ton of Coca-Cola memorabilia out there. And I know a lot of it's worth a lot of money. In your opinion and from what you've been finding, what is the most valuable piece of Coca-Cola memorabilia that you're aware of? And do you have an idea of the value? Uh, that's an easy one. That's in my uh, second book um, where we talk about the Coca-Cola bottle. No, we talk about that in the first book. Um, the Coca-Cola bottle, as we know it, was invented in 1905 by a glass company in Terre Haute, Indiana. And it was because Coca-Cola was tired of the brand being knocked off by people using whatever bottle, as was Coca-Cola bottlers, whatever bottle you could get, you put the Coca-Cola in it. And it was confusing to the consumer. They'd walk into a store and there might be a bottle of X brand there and it would call itself Cola with a K and they'd buy it thinking they were buying Coca-Cola. So Coca-Cola issued a challenge to the glass bottle makers. We want our bottle. When you pick it up, hold it in your hand. It's our bottle and you know it's Coca-Cola. Okay, so they had the competition. There were six bottling bottle glass manufacturers that responded to the competition. One of them from Terre Haute, Indiana won the competition. Each of the manufacturers brought six prototype bottles to the judging. It was a judging by Coca-Cola bottlers. After the winner was selected, the word went out to all the bottlers, these prototypes must be destroyed, except <laughs> one which was uh -huh. kept in the archives of Coca-Cola. And all the rest of them were supposed to be destroyed, but guess what? Not <laughs> one of the winning uh, glass design escaped, okay? Escaped the death penalty. This was in 1905 and turned up two years ago at an hmm. auction, an estate auction in California. And that bottle, to answer your question about pricing, that bottle went for over $150,000. Wow. And, wow. and we know it was, in fact, that bottle because on the bottom of the bottle is the date 1905. Coca-Cola mm. never started using that bottle until 1906. Mm. So it was in fact, one of the bottles presented as a prototype bottle 
and it went for 150000 And guess what? They wouldn't tell me who bought it. <laughs> we, do, we do know it happened, and we, we did monitor the auction. So it was, it was for real. Okay. So kind of different than when you and I used to take back bottles for two cents. Huh? Yeah, that's right. right. <laughs> yeah, that's a little more. That's a, that's a few two-cent bottles, right? Um, well, you mentioned in your book, sticking with the bottles, two different museums that celebrate the design of the bottle. Uh, you kind of talked about how special the bottle was, um, but two museums, is it just uh, the two locations feel a part of that history or, or, or why do we have two bottle museums that uh, spotlight Coca-Cola? Well, it's, it's actually um, not just the bottle that's being featured, but like in Vicksburg, of course, that's the first place it was bottled. So the bottle is a big is a big deal, you know. Uh, then you get to places like Chattanooga, where in fact, five years after they were doing it in Vicksburg, um, they finally started bottling it in Chattanooga. So that was really the second place, and that that bottle that came out of that plant also is is recognized. But um, you know, why is the bottle green? Remember the original Coca-Cola bottle had a green to it. Now we get to um, the sequel in my books. Um, the reason the bottle is green is that the company in Terre Haute, Indiana owned a sand quarry about 50 miles away, ironically in a town called Greencastle, Indiana that had nothing to do with the color. But the, the minerals within that sand, copper being the dominant one, when the bottle was made, it had a light green tint to it. When Coca-Cola corporate saw that, they loved it. And they insisted later on that when other glass bottle manufacturers were licensed to make the bottle, that if they didn't have those minerals in their sand, they should add them because the Coca-Cola bottle had to be light green. Wow, very interesting. Well, Larry, uh, if people want to pick up the book, what's the best place? How can they get it? The best place is on the website, which is simply the Coca-Cola trail.com. And uh, if you do it there and, and add a note, I'll even sign it to you. Uh, but you're going to find it in a lot of places, country stores. Uh, if you walk in and there's a Coca-Cola sign from way back when hanging on the wall for sale, chances are they may have the book as well. Uh, a lot of the um, uh, tourist places, there's one up in Oklahoma called the, uh, the Soda Pop Ranch. It's along Highway 66. He's got a big soda bottle out in front of it. And he sells a ton of the books. Uh, you'll find it in museums. If you go to the towns that we've talked about, uh, there are bookstores there. If you go to Chattanooga, uh, there's a couple uh, historic places, uh, you know, Sea Rock City and that type of thing. They have the book for sale. So it, it, it'll show up in your travels. It'll show up. And uh, we, we hope you enjoy it. Absolutely. All right, uh, Larry. Well, we appreciate the time. Again, the name of the book, The Coca-Cola Trail, and um, lots of great photos in this book, uh, historical photos of places at the time 
that Coke was being produced, you know, back in the day, and just a lot of, uh, of interesting history. Uh, Ken and I talked about uh, last week on our show, or two weeks ago, how uh, we both were lucky enough to uh, get COVID uh, at the same time. And uh, this was, uh, I, I, this was uh, one of the things I did to pass the time during my uh, quarantine in my uh, bedroom was to uh, take a trip down the Coca-Cola Trail. It's a very entertaining book and, and an easy to read book. So Larry, we appreciate the time. And I'll, I'll close by simply uh, uh, saying that uh, from what I understand, Things go better with Coke. Ken, as you do your research for the show, I have an overachiever that you might want to look into. Uh, we'll see here. A young man in India broke a Guinness World Record balancing a soccer ball on his knee for 6 minutes, 16.98 seconds. Wow. Hassan okay. Askari said he dedicated two years of his life to get the record. He said he found the record on the internet and decided to go for it. Says he practiced for several months before breaking the record, which has been officially recognized by the Guinness Book of World Records. You know, soccer ball on the knee. On the knee. Practiced for dedicated two years of his life to it. It just holds it there. Yeah. I don't know that wow. I would dedicate two years of my life to getting in the Guinness Book of World Records. Courtesy of the knee. Right. And a soccer ball. How do you practice for that? You just stand still and put the knee, put the ball in the knee. And I guess. Go from there. I wonder if there's a Guinness World Record for the number of billiard balls you can flush down your toilet. I think I found my new job. Yeah. What's I that? I would like to. I would like to be the gentleman or lady that is standing there watching him do this so uh -huh. I can record it. Oh, Six yeah. minutes of watching a man hold a ball <laughs> on his knee. Yeah, That's a good job for me. There you go. Yeah. Take some no-dos. You'll be all set. Yeah, pretty much. All right. Well, uh, he's in the record book, and therefore he is an overachiever. Another edition of This Week in Cleveland History. That means we have the pleasure to speak with John Grabowski. In previous weeks, we talked about Huff Bakeries, the Hope Memorial Bridge, and the Powerhouse in the Flats. And today, we're going to talk about Cargill Salt. Now, John, this is a little different than the structures we talked about. What is so important? And tell us the history of Cargill Salt, as well as how it's involved with Cleveland. Oh, my gosh. Well, Cargill Salt, I mean, basically, it's all about I'm going to sound boring, the geology of Greater Cleveland and the Great Lakes area. And, and it's all about the fact that human beings have always needed salt as have animals. So let me go way back before I get you underground. Uh, when, <laughs> when Moses Cleveland surveyors were laying out this area, one of the things that they looked for were outcroppings of salt because they knew they would need salt. So they found salt licks where Native Americans and animals had gone and they marked those things on the map. And uh, as, as the city grew, that, that, that need for salt was still around and uh, they, they got a lot of the salt by drilling wells. They brought up brine and then they refined the salt out of the brine wells. Uh, 
But geologists knew there was a lot of salt around uh, because they'd already drilled down. And um, I believe it was like 1952 or 1958, actually, this is when the salt mine starts as Cleveland International Salt. Mm. It becomes Axo Noble. And it's basically, they go down 1,700 feet uh, from Whiskey Island. And under that is an incredibly thick layer of salt. It's called wow. the Silurian la layer. And, and it's all the way around this part of the Great Lakes. So there's enough salt down there forever, if you want to think about it. Uh, and right now, the mine is just incredible. You can't go down there uh, as a private citizen. It's, it's, it's basically controlled. It, it went from Axel Noble to, uh, to Cargill. And uh, the salt there is not the stuff you get out of the salt shaker. It's the stuff we put on our roads in the winter. Uh -huh. So from the bottom of the lake to the rust on your car, you've got a, uh, you've got a full <laughs> transition there, if you will. And, uh, but the remarkable thing about the mine is there are different levels. Uh, I think the galleries that they cut out, they do these by blasting. Uh, they're, they're basically 45 feet wide. And then there are 105 foot circumference pillars that they leave to hold up the ceiling. Uh, and they just keep mining. And so far as I know, they're several miles out under the lake and, and the mined area stretches basically from Edgewater Park uh, to roughly Burke Lakefront Airport. Wow. So, so it's, and we supply salt by truck, by train to the entire Midwest. It's one wow. of the five largest salt producers in the nation now. Wow. So the, the salt mines are 1,700 feet below ground ground right so how i i how, how deep is lake erie at its deepest point uh, i don't i can't feet, tell right? you it's one of the shallowest lakes one of the, the shallowest so so uh they probably had to do uh i'm guessing a geologist had to figure out how how close they could get to the bottom of the lake and still be safe to go underneath it is that yeah, uh, well, there's a very thick layer of sandstone between okay. salt deposits and the lake so the salt is under under the sandstone in the lake. So it goes back that far geologically. Wow. So, you know, there've been minor leaks in, in, in the mine, but it's not the lake leaking and it's just from the salt that they have. Uh, I mean, I'd love to go see that someday. Yeah, yeah. Just, and, uh, you know, and it's it's not been there that long. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting, people, people became aware of the salt underneath here when, when they began drilling for, um, drilling for natural gas in the late 1800s. If they've got deep wells, they would go through a salt layer after they got through the rock area. And so they began to know that there was salt down there. Uh, I think they need to hire a marketing person and uh, get some tours going. Yeah. Make some money on that. Uh, well, I, you know, what, one has to wonder what the insurance fee would be to take a tour. <laughs> That's a good question, John. Yeah, because That's there are emergency procedures they have in that mine you know, already for, for the guys who work down there. And, you know, the salt is basically, it's blasted out and they're the big front end loaders to take the chunks out. It's ground out, uh, ground up down below, shoot it up to the top where it's refined and sorted. And, and then it, it goes by train or truck or into bags. Wow. Yeah, it's Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, John, what a history lesson we got today. I really appreciate it to talk about Cargill salt, the history and why it's been so successful and did yeah. not know that supplying most of the Midwest with salt. John, yeah. thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate it. My pleasure, Ken. Ted, take care.
the most trusted name in journalism, Klops Clips. All right, Ken, time for news you might not have heard, but I'm here to give it to you. I need it. More than 8 million gallons of raw sewage. By the way, when you have that mummer and raw sewage in the same sentence, you've got something terribly wrong. More than 8 million gallons of raw sewage has leaked into the Dominguez Channel in California. This is due to a failure of a four-foot sewer line. That sewage spilled through the Los Angeles Harbor and has now closed beaches in the city of Long Beach. Oh, man. Eight million gallons of raw sewage. Wow. I don't know how fast the sewage goes there, but that's a lot of sewage. That's a tremendous a lot of sewage. I wonder if someone noticed that after a while. They just said, ah, it'll be fine. Yeah. This will be good. Just, Just let it go. Wow. A city in Japan has hotels offering discounts to any guests who identify themselves as extraterrestrials. They also have an airport that is, quote, Asia's first horizontal spaceport. Supposedly, it's going to launch satellites this year. And the folks there have set up an Instagram account with photos of alleged aliens already taking advantage of the amenities the hotel, the city, and the surrounding areas offer. 45 hotels are participating in this somewhat tongue-in-cheek campaign to help promote tourism. So let me get this straight. I walk into this hotel and tell these people that I'm E.T. Yeah. And I get to stay there for free? Apparently. Wow. I, uh... Do you think I could do that at the downtown Hilton? No. Okay. I, uh, I'm trying to understand how, you know, okay, uh, I get the idea of the free room. That doesn't really, I don't know how that benefits the economy of the area. No. But, hey, uh, we got aliens over here. Come visit us. Well, I want to see the, I want to see the pictures. You want to see the pictures on Instagram? I I do. I wonder, you know, uh, is that really, you know, hey, there's aliens over here. Does that make you and anyone want to go vacation there? No, I I wouldn't want to go there if I know there's aliens. Right. That would, to me, I'd want to do the opposite. Right. But but maybe there's a different group that would really like that. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's like Men in Black where you look at these people and you never know they, they were aliens. Yeah, could be. I don't know. Wow. All right. Well, a Michigan woman facing prison time now for trying to hire a hitman to knock off her ex-husband. Oh. Wendy Wine found the website rentahitman.com. Rentahitman.com. Now, the website promises to, quote, handle your delicate situation privately and in a timely manner. The site offers testimonials claims to have almost 18,000 field operatives. Wendy sent a message through the site offering five grand for the hit job, noting, quote, this is kind of weird that your company is not on the deep or dark web. I prefer not to go to jail. Thanks for your time. 
Well, there's a reason the site is not on the deeper dark web. It's a phony site that acts as online bait. Oh, my. The site launched in 2005, and about 400 people have requested service so far. Some want to become hitmen. Some are trying to play a joke on a friend. And about 10% have been turned into cases where police are involved. There you go. Rentahitman.com. Next time, Wendy, who I think she should be starting to drink some wine, um, maybe she needs to go to the site killyourhusband.com. I think well, that'll probably work out better. Yeah, that might that might work. I don't know. Wow, that's crazy. Rentahitman.com, now immortalized as part of this week's collection of Pops Clips. Ken, we're coming to the end of episode 79. What a what an interview with uh, Larry Jorgensen from the Coca-Cola Trail. Lots of interesting info. I knew Coca-Cola was big time, but uh, it's got a, uh, a deep and winding history, I guess, is one way to describe it. Really does. And Larry does a great job of certainly talking about all the different sites and all that. I have had a chance to read some of his book and I, I, after talking to him, I'm going to have to finish it because really, really good information about Coca-Cola. Very cool. Now, next time on the show, two weeks from now, Bob Ginsburg is going to join us. He is a gentleman who has found and researches evidence of an afterlife. He also talks about grief talks about mediums and whether they are legit or not. He talks about near-death experiences, deathbed visions, reincarnation, and, well, just lots of interesting uh, uh, afterlife or near-death uh, topics. So that'll be a uh, – we're not around Halloween anymore, but this is a, a very interesting topic that we're going to explore with a guy who uh, seems to have had some experience with it. Absolutely. And then if I'm not mistaken, he's also involved with the Netflix show. So it's yes. kind of legitimizes a lot of the things that, uh, you know, certainly he talks about and all that. So I look forward to talking to him. That should be a very interesting conversation. You and I don't have a lot of experience with that, but I'm always fascinated to hear those types of stories and things like that. That should be great. I'm yeah. looking forward to that. Yeah. Those are, those are our, uh, you don't get to talk about that kind of stuff every day, much less with people who uh, seem to know what they're talking about. And uh, from everything I've seen and read, Bob uh, knows what he's talking about. And so it'll be uh, interesting to uh, hear what he has to say. So yeah, that'll be cool. That's in a couple of weeks. Now, I did want to mention that uh, a week or so ago, we took our kids to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in uh, Canton. Oh, wow. How cool. Yeah. That was, it's been, uh, gosh, 20 years or more since I've been there. You know, it's right down the road, but how often do you go? But yeah, it was, it was great. They absolutely loved it. Uh, my oldest son, who unfortunately, and I, uh, maybe it's bad parenting. I don't know. Is a Steelers fan. Okay. He, <laughs> you know, he's 10. But man, he like 
Hey, Dan, look, Donnie Shell. Hey, look, Terry. Hey, Rocky Black. He knew them all. It was that's impressive. It was was impressive. Um, My middle son knew some of the Browns names like he's like, oh, look, where's or you know, hey, there's Lou Groza. Where's Otto Graham? So that was neat. My youngest son hasn't gotten into football that much yet, but but, uh, you know, he still thought it was cool. You could try on uh, game size shoulder pads, which give you an idea of how big these guys are. Uh, game size helmet with the speaker, so you can hear the coach talking to you. And then this was neat. They have casts of some of the all-time great uh, quarterbacks and running backs, their hands on the football. So you can put your hand in and see how big their hand is compared to yours. That's and then cool. The other thing they have, they have casts of some, I think they're all linemen, maybe some running backs, their leg and thigh. So you get a chance to see how tall they are and how wide their leg is. My 10-year-old son could fit in, now this is like a half of a cast. So you could, you know, try to squeeze in. My son, 10 years old, no problem squeezing into some of these guys' legs, the cast of their leg. It was amazing how big these guys are. That's like oh. Earl, Earl Campbell was that guy. I bet you yeah. that was a cast of his yeah. leg, I think. Yeah, I've yeah. seen that before. They do yeah. such a nice job over they there. Do. That is so interactive, so well done. It, I mean, and you can get through the whole thing in like two hours. I mean, yeah. you could spend much more time if you want. But if there's videos to watch and movies. And I, it's, it is so well done over there. They, they really know what they're doing. It's outstanding. Really well we, done. That's cool. We spent... Oh, little more than half the day there by the time we were done. But that was in part because we took our time and we had food. And then when we were done next to the Hall of Fame, and I'm not talking about the stadium, but next to the Hall of Fame, there's like a a 70 yard artificial turf field that's as uh, you know wide as a regulation football field that you yeah. can play on, play catch on. Oh, that's and, cool. And so we had a football with us. And my two oldest kids could not wait to play on a real football field. And um, my oldest son, I think his highlight was to see in the Hall of Fame. My middle son, hands down, he could have played on that thing all day. That was just playing on a real artificial turf football field was just, he was over the moon. That's so cool. Wow. Yeah. There's not that many opportunities. I mean, obviously a lot of schools have artificial fields and all that stuff, but that is just such a neat experience. You know, they see it on TV, then they can kind of relive that themselves. And once again, the hall of fame is just taking up tons of different land over there and putting yep. in tons of field. I mean, how many fields did you see over there now, Ted? It's been a well, while there, since I've been the, there. There's the one that we played on. There's the stadium. And I couldn't see what all else is going on because it's all roped off. There's a ton yeah. of construction. It's like, it's like Disneyland. Uh, you know, they have giant uh, fences and whatnot. Uh, they're building, I think it's going to be, uh, you know, resort and maybe some retirement areas for some players and things like that. But they are building an awful lot of stuff there. So um, a lot of development going on there. Yeah, it's great stuff in that. Wonderful city of Canton. I always enjoy going to Canton, but that Hall of Fame, if, if people listening haven't been there, you need to get there. Because even if 
outfits a couple of years ago and kind of like what Ted was about 10 years ago, it's completely different and you have to see it. It's so yep. cool. Yep. So hey, before cool. we go, I love to do this every year. How'd you spend your New Year's Eve and were you awake at midnight? I spent my New Year's Eve in the fine town of Rocky River. Mm -hmm. And yes, I was awake. I made Thank it. I made it to another another year. I actually was up too late. I'm okay. not gonna lie. I I made it to four. I don't oh, know. Wow. How I did that. Oh, wow. oh yeah, oh, that's a, that's pretty that's pretty late for me. Yeah. So, so, yeah. Well a lot of conversations. We uh we were at home. Our kids wanted to stay up and we were like, mm, no. So <laughs> we, no, <laughs> no. So uh, got them to bed and uh, we had on um, like 1045. We flipped over to Ryan Seacrest or Dick Clark. Dick Clark's rocking New Year's Eve and Ryan Seacrest is on there and he's naming who's going to be on. And there was like Journey and some other bands that, you know, I was like, oh, wow, that's kind of cool. And they were breaking for the local news. And I was like, well, maybe we should flip back over after. So then we, we put on a, you know, a show we're watching and we're watching the show. And I happened to glance down at my watch or my phone. It's 12.02. <laughs> so I looked at my wife and I said, hey, it's 12.02. She said, oh, happy new year. I said, happy new year. We blew each other a kiss and. Within about 10 minutes, we went to bed. That there is you go. just, that's the level of excitement we have at our house. Happy New Year. Two minutes later. Yep. It's all right. It's all right. Yep. Yeah. It's not like the years past where, you know, I don't know if you do this. I did this a couple of times, run downtown and oh, yeah. do all that and all that. Yeah, I did that for a couple of years or go to a dinner and all that. But right. where things are at right now, we just stayed home. It's, so. it's amateur night and it's probably yeah. safest spent, you know, if you want to go out and have a, have an adult beverage, do it some of the night. It's much safer. I agree. So. I agree. All For right. Sure. Well, that puts the wraps on uh, the first episode of two middle-aged men in Cleveland for 2022, Ken. Unbelievable. Just rolling along and special thanks out to our social media folks. Uh, we have 1,600 followers now on Instagram. So wow. thank you so much for following us. And we'll continue to post things. And uh, we, we'd love to hear your comments. So reach out to us. And uh, we appreciate it. We really do. We really do. Anything else you want to remind us of here as we kick off 2022? As I sit back here and think, Ted, the only thing I could say is that we're just two middle-aged men in Cleveland. Two Middle-Aged Men in Cleveland is sponsored by Anchor.fm. Everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And by Westminster AV. Custom audio-visual packages for all occasions.